And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. What what is that all about? Hold on here. <laughs> oh my goodness, my goodness, my goodness, my goodness. Hang on. One, two, that's for whatever reason that one's not working. There it is. Alright, so we'll do this. Okay, well. Welcome everyone. <laughs> this is okay. Um I am That sounds really, really weird. Does that sound weird to you? That sounds weird. Okay, stand by, folks. We are just figuring this out. If you if you have um, noticed a little bit, uh, things are a little different. Welcome. It is 2021. My name is Jason Hunt. I'm the editor here at Sci-Fi for Me, and this microphone does not appear to be working. So I'm just going to move it out of the way. <clears throat> And we will use the uh, the new gear that we got for the new year, and uh, hope for the best. Hopefully that the uh, well, the sound is somewhat there. Uh, so uh, we'll see. Uh, this one seems to be giving me a little bit more wrestle rustling than I'm uh, than I like. So we'll we'll do some we'll do some adjusting, some tweaking. We're back. Uh, if you are uh, if you are watching live, uh, the comments on uh, Facebook are open, and uh, the chat on uh, YouTube, uh, you can jump in there and join the conversation. And of course, if you are not live, you can leave us a comment or you can send us an email. Live from the bunker at sci-fi4me.com is that address. And uh, we are happy to be back. the the uh, The holiday was fairly good to us. We, uh, we managed to stay healthy throughout the, the couple of weeks that we were out. And uh, it is also now, uh, as you can see behind me, for those of you who are watching the video, we took the time to rearrange the studio. And while our bump shot is essentially the same, you can see throughout the room that our, uh, that our layout has changed. Uh, the desk is in a different place. The sign is in a different place. And so we're making some adjustments here just for the new year. I thought we would refresh things a little bit. And actually, uh, we're not done yet because, uh, as you can see over my shoulder behind me, there are clocks. And, and these clocks have been around. It's just you haven't been able to see them because they've been over my desk. So now we've moved the desk, and now you can see the clocks. And we have uh, now uh, fully invested in making those look like the uh, newsrooms of ye olden days. And we'll be putting these, uh, these city signs underneath each clock to uh, designate time zones and whatnot. And of course, ours uh, will say sci-fi for me. So welcome, everybody. It's good to be here uh, today. We don't have a guest, but I thought I would take the time to expand a little bit on my review of Wonder Woman 1984 and talk a little bit about some different things 
that we've been seeing in the fandom. Uh, and it's, it's one of those things where if, if, you, if you look at it one particular way, Wonder Woman 1984 is a flop. Do I sound overmodulated over there? Do I sound too too much too much because I'm seeing my winky blinkies here? It's one of those things where that does it sound okay to you? you Mrs. Boss is here doing quality control, folks. Stand by here for a moment. Does that sound okay? A little overmodulated. Okay, let me let me uh, let me do some adjusting here. All right, because I am looking at all of this and it looks really, really, really weird. Um, I wonder, see, because the setup is the same and yet, since we're in a different place in the room, I had to take it apart and put it back together. And of course, even though I put it back together exactly the same, it's, uh, it's deciding that it doesn't want to do what it wants to do. So let me let me do this, and that's going to do. That's going to give me a little bit more uh, of an idea of what we sound like. So there is uh, there is a, a a review up on sci-fi for me.com. Uh, Al Alois says there's an echo. Okay, it's probably some bounce off the wall. I may actually have to invest in some sound some sound baffles for a change. All right, so anyway, it's a constant work in progress, folks. So, okay, the echo is gone, Alex says. Okay, that's good. And by the way, welcome. Uh, I don't think I've seen your name in the chat before, so welcome. It's good to see you here. And it is one of those things where... Um, I, I looked at, I, we saw, we went and watched Wonder Woman 84 in the theaters. Patty Jenkins, the director and co-writer who had said, you know, you've got to experience this thing up on the screen. You've got to see it up on a screen. And I would tend to agree that it does make a difference in uh, how you see this movie. Because watching it on your TV screen, uh, I don't think does it justice. Now, having said all of that, I want to expand on my review because a lot of people are trashing this movie. And it strikes me that there is a possibility some people are not seeing this movie for what it might be. I'm, I'm not fully convinced that I have it right. Uh, it, is, uh, it is an occasional something that happens where I'm not right. Uh, this does happen. But uh, my perception of Wonder Woman 84, if you look at it as if it were made in 1984, then it's then it makes a certain amount of sense. And I want to I want to go through some of that and do some comparisons to uh, an, another superhero movie that was made in 1984 that almost kind of parallels. Wonder Woman 84 because you have Supergirl. Supergirl was made it was released in 1984. It was uh, it was a Warner Brothers uh, Salkin Alexander and Ilya Salkin production same as Superman from 1978 which was uh, uh, Christopher Reeve's debut. 
directed by Richard Donner. And of course, Patty Jenkins has said that Superman 1978 was the inspiration not only for her first Wonder Woman film in terms of tone and style and, and that kind of thing, but Superman 78 was her inspiration to become a filmmaker. Before that, she was a painter. And she decided, okay, I want to get into making movies. And so it is uh, well documented that the first Wonder Woman film from 2017 is sort of an homage to Richard Donner's first Superman film. And we even see in the, uh, we even see in the alleyway scene uh, an echo of the alley, you know, the robbery in the alley from the first Superman movie where he catches the bullet and faints. And that's got me thinking and wondering and pondering what if, and I'm not saying that this is the case, I think a case can be made, but I could be completely off my rocker. It's been, it, 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 ha it happens every now and again because I'm old. But, hey, what was that? I coughed. Oh, you coughed. No, All right. <laughs> anyway, so one of the things that I notice is uh, if, if, you, uh, if you look at uh, who wrote the movie, you've got Jeff Johns, Patty Jenkins, and a guy named Dave McCallum. Now, Dave McCallum, I don't know his name. I'm not familiar with his work, but... According to IMDb, he's got quite an extensive track record in action films, the Expendables series, uh, uh, Jean-Claude Van Johnson, Zombieland, Double Tap. Uh, he's, he did the screenplay for the upcoming Mortal Kombat. He's working on Shang-Chi and the, and the uh, Legend of the Ten Rings. Uh, Into the Spider-Verse 2, the Spider-Man uh, animated picture. He did story on Godzilla. So he's got... Uh, geek cred, I guess you could say. Uh, experience writing scripts for the the superhero uh, action genre, and of course you've got Jeff Johns who made his bones in writing comic books and writing these characters. He brought uh, Hal Jordan back as a Green Lantern. He brought Barry Allen back as a, as the Flash. Uh, he brought essentially the DC Comics universe back in, in Rebirth. So he's got a track record as well in terms of the kind of stories that he writes. He's a, he's a, a well-respected comic book writer for the most part. There are some people that, uh, that are not too impressed with him. And then, of course, there's all of the stuff that came out about Joss Whedon's Justice League and Jeff Johns being a part of that and John Berg. And the complaints from Ray Fisher, that's, that's a completely different discussion we're not going to get into today. But Jeff Johns has had his reputation somewhat tarnished by recent events. But at the same time, that doesn't really reduce his, uh, his skill as a writer. I mean, he's still, he's still involved in the Stargirl series over on HBO Max. And there are people who still think that he's a de he's a decent writer, and you know now of course people throw in shade at Walter Hamada over at Warner Brothers. You can't you can't keep looking for people to blame. 
because at some point you're going to run out of people to blame. You keep you keep shuffling the the executive chairs on the deck of the Titanic, and you know at some point there's not going to be anybody left who can take responsibility for the missteps. And some people are characterizing Wonder Woman eighty four as a misstep. But what if it's not? What if Patty Jenkins? is looking at her inspiration, Superman, 1978, Richard Donner, Christopher Reeve, and looking at, I don't think 1984 was, uh, was a, a, a glib choice. I don't think it was just a random thing. I think uh, they picked 1984 for a specific reason. What if that reason was the fact that Supergirl was released in 1984? What if they're doing an homage of sorts to Supergirl, which was essentially the first female superhero movie. And the reason I say that, and I and I and I go through some of this in my review over the dot com, the reason that I'm that I'm suspecting this is that you have a lot of parallels between the two films, between Wonder Woman 84 and Supergirl, you have a number of things that are uh, that are similar. You have a magic-based MacGuffin. You have uh, the combination of Selena, the the sorceress who dabbles in magic, and then you have the Omega Hedron, which augments her power. And then you have over on uh, on Wonder Woman, you have the Wishing Stone, which is this magic talisman object that gives Maxwell Lord his power and, and makes all of this happen. So the MacGuffin is this magic thing, this magic power enhancer, uh, very similar. So, so you could say, you can make the comparison that the, that the Wishing Stone is the Omegahedron. You have a, a segment of the story where your hero, your, your, your star, your heroine, your superhero, loses her power. Supergirl gets stuck in the Phantom Zone. She doesn't have her power. Wonder Woman loses her power because of the wish that she made to bring Steve Trevor back. By the way, we're getting into spoilers. It's been two weeks. I don't care. At, at one point in the film, for each of these stories, the heroine has to make a sacrifice in order to get her power back and go into the third act for the final confrontation. Diana has to give up, renounce her wish for Steve Trevor to be back in order to get her power back. Uh, Supergirl, sacri- the, the sacrifice of Zoltar, of, of, uh, of um, uh, Peter O'Toole's character in the Phantom Zone, his death get, you know, allows her to escape the Phantom Zone, which gets her her power back for her final confrontation with the villain. Now, the thing that I get with, with Maxwell Lord is that he's not really a villain, and I have a problem with that, but it is consistent with something that Patty Jenkins had said a while back. This is on her IMDb page. Uh, an observation that she made in 2017. She says, our quote, our fantasy of a hero is that he's the good guy who is going to shut down the bad guy. That has got to change if we want to deal with the crisis that we're in. 
There is no bad guy. We are all to blame. New kinds of heroics need to be celebrated, like love, thoughtfulness, forgiveness, diplomacy, or we're not going to get there. No one is coming to save us. Now, if, if you expand on that, if you extrapolate from that, where she's sitting there saying there's no good guy and there's no bad guy, it actually kind of fits in with how Maxwell Lord is portrayed in this because he's not really a bad guy. He's not a villain. He's not a Lex Luthor. He is a misunderstood, abused during childhood just wants to do right so his kid will be proud of him. I mean, there's there's all of those tropes. And some people have said the, you know, that you know that he's the the Donald Trump analog. I don't see that as much as a lot of people were saying it was there. I, I didn't see as much as I was ex expecting to see. Uh, certainly, I think he is visually styled a little bit. Uh, to resemble Trump, but in terms of the type of character Maxwell Lord is presented to be, he feels more like a cross between the televangelists of the time and a used car salesman. He doesn't really feel like a Donald Trump type of character. So, it, you know, that, that comparison only goes so far. But I think also you, you don't have Maxwell Lord in this movie. They call him Maxwell Lord, but he's not Maxwell Lord. I think Maxwell Lord from the comic books, if you go back and look through Justice League International, that, ju that Maxwell Lord is far more interesting as a character and far more dangerous because of the actual powers that he has uh, with mind control and whatnot. Of course, you can't really do those stories because in this universe, in this movie timeline, none of these heroes exist yet except Wonder Woman. So there's no Batman, there's no Superman, there's no there's no Justice League at this point and all of that. So it doesn't really work. Besides which, we've already snapped the neck of the villain in Man of Steel and, and taken all of that away. So you can't really do that as easily. Now I want to go through the box office numbers here for just a second because that, that does matter in the long term uh, of what... Uh, what we're looking at in terms of what happens next. But I think you, if, you, if you make the case that Wonder Woman 84 is Supergirl with a bigger budget, it works. If you watch it as if it were made in 1984 with the 1984 sensibilities, then it's much more watchable because you're, you're looking at a time capsule of sorts. You're looking at... Uh, Superman for the quest for peace. You're looking at Supergirl. You're looking at Halle Berry's Catwoman. These kind of films that were made back then were more fantastical, I guess you could say. There was less of a need for consistent story logic, internal story logic and whatnot. So there's a, there are a lot of things in this new movie that harken back to the days of those movies, the 1980s and 90s, where you had movies like Batman and Batman Returns and Steel. I, I really wanted to compare this to Steel, starring Shaquille O'Neal, but that didn't come out until 1994. So it was, it was a little bit further back. 
But at the same time, it's that same kind of superhero movie, and you were getting that kind of thing in the Batman films. Uh, you know, the the stuff that was happening on television with the Hulk movies and and those kind of things. There is a certain tone and a certain sensibility in those films that you don't have nowadays. And I know a lot of that has to do with the fact that Zack Snyder and Christopher Nolan and all these people wanted to ground the DC movies in reality. And like we've talked about on on the H2O podcast, uh, Tim has pointed out, when you start to apply real-world physics and when you start to uh, try to present these characters as if they're in the real world, quote-unquote, uh, there are uh, consequences that don't really fit the comic book movie sensibility. And I think you get a little bit of that in the Marvel films, but not as much. Marvel's cinematic universe movies have a tendency to gloss over some of that. Now, they've addressed it some, and you know the destruction and, and the, the, the random acts of uh, you know, buildings collapsing and whatnot, that actually does get addressed a little bit in some of the Marvel stuff. But it's the Marvel, the Marvel movies, as I've said before, the Marvel movies feel like comic book movies, whereas the DC movies feel like movies that are based on, on comic books. And there's a very real difference in the tone and the approach to how you make these films. And I think Wonder Woman 84 goes back to a time when Warner Brothers was making comic book movies. It doesn't have to make sense. It doesn't have to be logical. It's a comic book. There is no real-world physics. There is no logic to any of this. Although I do think that it's really uh, interesting that we went from Wonder Woman flying in an invisible jet, which was the Linda Carter Wonder Woman, and, and early days Wonder Woman, Super Friends Wonder Woman, and all of that, uh, to Wonder Woman being able to fly, which is Justice League International, and all of the later projects, uh, the animated projects with Wonder Woman in it, she can fly. Now we have an explanation-ish on how she can fly. So there is that, uh, that 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 piece of the lore, the continuity, I guess, the canon, if you will, uh, does get a little bit. You know, it's fan service, and this movie is more fan service than it is anything that has to make sense in in the in the vein of you know fitting into the DC Comics uh, extended universe. The problem with this is also the fact that it doesn't fit in because Wonder Woman in, I think it was Batman v Superman, uh, Wonder Woman said, or Justice League, one of the two, says that she's been in hiding for a hundred years since the war. Well, if that's the case and she's showing up in full costume in 1984 and this whole thing, major disaster, the world is going to end, happens, there's a disconnect there. So that's either going to have to be explained or it's going to have to be lampshaded or glossed over or something is going to have to be done to address it. Now, the other part of that, if you look at the box office numbers, week to week, we've got a 64% drop uh, from the second week to the first week. First week, 
worldwide, uh, the movie pulled in $85 million. Now, this is only in theatrical box office. This does not take in any, any, any numbers from HBO Max because we don't really have any of that. Domestically, here in the U.S., $16.7 million. This year, this weekend, uh, this past weekend, five point five million. It's a box office drop of sixty-seven percent. And Rotten Tomatoes, of course, it's it's dropping like a rock. And there are still people who sit there and aggressively defend this movie, even though. Uh, they are having to kind of walk back a little bit and go, yeah, there were problems, yeah, there's this, and yeah, there's that, and allow for the for the for the complaints and the criticisms. Uh, and and just a real quick word on Grace Randolph. I don't I don't I don't, I don't want to throw shade at Grace. She does a good job. She's got some some interesting sources, and I don't want to sit there and and call her out for anything. But I do want to point out, uh, when the movie first came out, Grace was aggressively, in my view, aggressively defending this movie. Even though people kept saying, it's not a good movie. It's not a great movie. It's a terrible movie. It's, 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 a, it's a bad film. I don't think it's bad. I don't think it's great. I don't think it's that good. But I've certainly seen worse. And I've certainly seen worse come out of Warner Brothers in terms of DC Comics films. So it's not terrible. But the way that Grace especially was defending it, and she wasn't the only one, but it caused me to question, I thought, well, wait a minute, why is, why is she so uh, bent on making sure that people... Uh, respect this film and like this film. And then, uh, then I remembered, and I will bring this up just as a reminder for people, take everything that everybody says, and that includes me, with a grain of salt, because none of us are unbiased. And in Grace's case, stop and consider that a few months ago, it was announced that she was going to start working with Rooster Teeth. Rooster Teeth is owned by Otter Media. Otter as in the little uh, woodland creature that swims. You know, they're very cute. Otter Media is owned by AT&T, which also owns Warner Media, which owns Warner Brothers. So, in the spirit of journalistic full disclosure, I think Grace Randolph should be sitting there saying, hey, I've, I've worked with a company that's owned by the company that made this movie. She hasn't done that. She's been fairly objective and consistent in her videos about what went wrong with this film, and I'll give her kudos for that. But just, just keep in mind that nobody in this is totally objective. Now, we probably are... Pro we, uh, we're as objective as we could be. I mean, we have our own personal biases here, but we don't have any kind of a financial or, or material benefit 
to saying one thing or another about any of this stuff, whether it's you know Wonder Woman or the Justice League movies or Ray Fisher, or if you go into the Marvel stuff or Star Wars or Doctor Who or anything like that. We talk about those things because we're interested in those things. We're fans, just like you are. Uh, and some of us are fans who have been disappointed by recent projects. Uh, and some of us are fans who are, are thrilled with what's been going on and, and just love it to death. So it, it's a mixed bag all the way through. But we're not getting anything out of our reviews one way or the other. Nobody's giving us free stuff. Nobody's paying us to do anything. So we have no... Um, we have no connection to any of the people that are making the stuff that we enjoy or the stuff that we criticize. So just wanted to, to, to point that out. And I think that the decision to fast-track Wonder Woman 3 was mainly a PR move on the part of Warner Brothers. I think the, the opening weekend, it's doing fairly well. Uh, it's got okay reviews. So Warner Brothers sits there and, go and, and says, it's a hit, let's make the other one. And kind of, it's a, it's a marketing move at this point almost. Well, Wonder Woman 1984 is doing so well, we're going to go ahead and make the third one. Well, it's got to be good, so let's go see it. And again, all of this is geared toward getting more people to sign up for HBO Max. At the end of the day, ultimately, that's the goal. It is not, at this point, with the pandemic and the quarantine and the lockdowns and all that other garbage, it is not to make money at the theater in the box office for Wonder Woman 84. The goal now is get people to sign up for HBO Max and stay there. Retention is going to be a, a big part of this, and we're not going to know until long-term what's going to be happening with HBO Max numbers. Now, you also have to consider HBO Max is only available in the United States. So, you know, we've got, uh, according to Bloomberg, 554,000 downloads recently. So it's, it's made a dent, but as of, you know, as of December 8th, they only have 12.6 million subscribers, whereas you've got uh, Disney Plus making the announcement during their uh, their big Investor Day presentation. Worldwide, they've got 86.8 million. So HBO Max has a lot of catching up to do, and part of that is trying to roll out in other countries to get this service out there so people can see what's what's on that streaming platform. It, it just... There's a lot of there's a lot of people that are coming out, and I think as we go further into it, as we get uh, further away from the release date, uh, there are going to be people who are going to uh, let themselves, or they're going to be allowed to be a little bit more honest about what's going on with this, because Wonder Woman '84 is not a good movie. It's a watchable film. I mean, you buy a, bu a bucket of popcorn and you get a Coke and you just can sit down and you watch it for two hours and it's, it's a popcorn flick. And it is very much a 1980s superhero movie. And it's made that way. And whether, whether Patty Jenkins intended to or not, 
it is made as if it were made in 1984. And I think if you lean into that, okay, fine. And it makes it a little bit more watchable in terms of what kind of film. Because you go in there expecting it to be this billion-dollar movie like we've been getting from uh, the, the, the DCEU or the MCU or any of those things, and it doesn't hold up. But if you go in expecting it to be like Supergirl or Superman 4 or Superman 3 or Batman and Robin, Batman Forever, any of those films, then it kind of works a little bit better. But, of course, you've got all of these critics that are now saying, you know, it's garbage, it's terrible, it's, it's you know, woe is me, uh, ashes and sackcloth. Now what does this do? Because Patty Jenkins, the director, yes, she's getting Wonder Woman 3, but she's also been announced to be directing Rogue Squadron, which is the new Star Wars film. And now there are concerns that the performance, or lack thereof, of Wonder Woman 84 might impact her involvement in Rogue Squadron, or it might give us an indication of what kind of movie she will deliver with Rogue Squadron. And some people are a little, just a touch concerned about that. Uh, so we will keep an eye on that. Speaking of Star Wars, we do have this whole thing with Pablo Hidalgo. Over the last couple of weeks, we had the, the last episode of The Mandalorian that came out. And at the end of that show, the, series fina the season finale, you've got... Oh, are we, are we okay for spoilers now? Yeah. It's, been, it's been, what, three weeks? Three weeks? Lots of years. Yeah, it's been plenty of time. So at the end of The Mandalorian, Luke Skywalker shows up. Luke Skywalker in his black outfit from Return of the Jedi, in the, in the, the hooded robe that he was wearing at the, begin of, the beginning of Return of the Jedi. He's got his glove on. He's got his green lightsaber. Everybody is so excited to see Luke Skywalker coming back. And the reaction online was very, very emotional and very heartfelt, I thought. I didn't cry myself. I didn't tear up. I did get a little bit of, a, of a, a, an excitement, of a thrill to see the green lightsaber. Oh, it's green. Okay, it's great. Because, you know, you see the X-Wing show up. You don't know exactly who's doing it. But, of course, you see the guy, you know, this guy shows up in a black robe flying an X-Wing. Sure, it's... It's Luke Skywalker. Okay, fine. And when he shows up at the end and the hood comes off, it is, it is obvious to me, and, and I'll grant that I'm making a little bit of an assumption here, but it is obvious to me, it seems obvious to me, that we're looking at visual shorthand. A number of people over on Twitter was like, why wasn't he wearing his X-Wing outfit? Why, why was he wearing the black? Well, that is the last we saw of the hero, Luke Skywalker, who doesn't show up in The Last Jedi. And I think it's a visual shorthand. It's a, it's a cue, uh, a shortcut that 
Favreau and Filoni are making in order to uh, help us make the leap that this is the Luke Skywalker from the original trilogy. This is not the Luke Skywalker from the sequel trilogy. Should he have been wearing his X-Wing outfit? Probably. Uh, but I think there have been times in the extended universe novels where he didn't. Uh, when he's flying his X-Wing, it doesn't necessarily fall that he has to be wearing it. Although, like any pilot's outfit, it's probably something that he should be wearing uh, as, a, as a safety measure more than anything else. But when he shows up, there was a lot of emotional response online. A lot of people got really, really, really shook up over this. And one in particular was a YouTuber, Star Wars Theory, who's got almost 3 million subscribers. I think he's at 2.7 million subscribers. And his story is a little bit more nuanced, but it's also a little bit more emotional because he is a cancer survivor. And his story is that you know, while he's going through cancer, Luke Skywalker was one of those inspirations for him to sit and and gut it out and and put up with, you know, the treatments and the and the setbacks and the whatever. And and as he's fighting cancer, Luke Skywalker is one of his inspirations to do so. So he has a very big, a very emotional, almost a cathartic. Uh, response, reaction to Lou Skywalker showing up in The Mandalorian. Hello, Robert, in the chat. Welcome. And uh, apparently uh, Pablo Hidalgo comes out from behind his private Twitter and the assumption is, I'm going to make an assumption a lot of people made the assumption that Pablo Hidalgo, who works for Lucasfilm, who has been with Lucasfilm for 20-some-odd years, was making fun of Star Wars theory. Now, whether or not he was uh, targeting theory specifically or if he was targeting just everybody who was excited about seeing old, uh, past, original Luke Skywalker as opposed to what they were calling Jake Skywalker from The Last Jedi. But he's, he's apparently making fun of them, basically saying, you know, emotions are not to be shared. And he's got, you know, even made it his, uh, his uh, header on Twitter. Emotions are not for sharing. Now, whether he's trolling everyone or not, is immaterial because this opens up, it reopens old wounds, it kicks off uh, a long online firefight back and forth, and it also served to unite a few factions of the fandom menace, and they all came together over this, uh, where there has been some division in the past. And this one has not gone away like some of the other stuff. You know, Ryan Johnson has called fans man babies on his Twitter account. You've got people being raked over the coals for how they've mistreated Kelly Marie Tran, even though that hasn't really been proven to be true. As a matter of fact, there have been several several uh, who have looked into it who have found just the opposite, where people are, are 
criticizing the character of Rose Tico, but not Kelly Marie Tran herself. So this, this here has blown up to the point where it's actually made the pages of Variety. And this is new. This is a new development in all of this. Now, you go back, uh, Drunk3PO had uh, Star Wars Theory and had Jeremy from Geeks and Gamers on for this, for this very long live stream last week where they were talking about this. And Theory has been a little bit uh, removed, as it were, has not been as aware uh, because he's off in his own thing. He doesn't deal with drama. He's not into rage bait, hate click, any of that kind of thing, which is good, good on him. Uh, but he's also been one of those who apparently has not been targeted before now and now realizes that this whole culture war thing, the cancel culture and all of the other mess, is a very real thing because now he's become a target. And he didn't realize just how extensive it was. And everybody was like, well, dude, if you've been paying attention for the last couple of two, three years, then you would know a little bit more. But now he's aware. And <clears throat> with this article in Variety, this is an escalation, I think. And the result of it is that, you know, he's... he's Hidalgo, Pablo Hidalgo, actually did post an, an apology of sorts. It really feels like it was written by the corporate lawyers. But the fact that, that Hidalgo even made the apology, I think, is a step in the right direction. It is an acknowledgement, I think, that Lucasfilm or somebody in the hierarchy, whether at Lucasfilm or at Disney, recognizes that this is a PR problem. And when you have the rumor going around that Galaxy's Edge is about to be reskinned in Mandalorian time period, uh, we've seen Grogu on the ground there. Uh, R2-D2 has shown up. We, we know that the original plan was for Galaxy's Edge to be set on Tatooine in, as opposed to uh, uh, whatever this new place is, Baku or whatever. So it feels like we may have some movement inside Disney, inside Lucasfilm, to tamp down a little bit on the disrespect and the shade that's being thrown toward fans especially those fans who were not happy with The Last Jedi. And even Mark Hamill uh, has gone on his Twitter account basically talking about how, you know, his reaction. You know, he's talking about this, this, uh, this YouTube video here from Echo Base Network. This is a compilation of people who are reacting the same way that Star Wars Theory did. And Luke Hamill, uh, Luke Hamill, Mark Hamill even says, I'm a fan myself, so I knew true fans would love it, but to see them thrilled beyond belief with the exuberance of children, whooping it up, screaming in ecstasy, the tears of sheer joy, it's a roller coaster of emotions I'll never forget. Now, a couple of things here. I don't know what he means by true fans. 
I mean, there certainly has been some debate because if you don't like The Last Jedi, you're not a true fan of Star Wars. We've heard that. Uh, and we've heard the opposite. We've heard true fans of Star Wars hate The Last Jedi. I personally hate The Last Jedi, but I'm not going to gatekeep and sit there and, and throw up a litmus test and say, hey, if you don't like The Last Jedi, you're not a true Star Wars fan. Star Wars fans come in all shapes and sizes. But it is telling, I think, that Hamill connects the people who are emotionally reacting to Luke Skywalker's appearance to true fandom. I don't know that he's... Uh, I don't think he's really uh, uh, taking a side yet, but maybe. Uh, he does say uh, in another tweet, sometimes the greatest gifts are the most unexpected and something you never realized you wanted until it was given. Thank you, John and Dave. Again, people are, are wondering if he's throwing shade. And the... The rumor mill continues to churn out speculation, and this kind of thing uh, goes to support the speculation that there is still a civil war going on inside the offices of Lucasfilm between the Kathleen Kennedy clan, or the, or the Kennedy cult, and the Lucasfilm loyalists. The people who feel like Star Wars is a certain thing uh, one way or the other. And it really does feel like that somebody at Disney is paying attention now to the way the fans react. And whether we get Sebastian Stan as Luke Skywalker, or if we get a CGI Luke Skywalker face swap or whatever, it, it seems like the people, the fandom in general, are responding more positively to The Mandalorian. Although people are sitting there saying, well, you know, eventually it leads to the sequel trilogy. So literally it's really meaningless. So we're going to hate on Disney no matter what. I think if you are in that camp, that's fine you can sit there and retroactively or pro, you know, uh, proactively hate on what's now leading to what's coming, but I think you're missing out. I think you're, you are those, those people who are sitting there saying that, that the Mandalorian is junk because it's still going to connect to the sequel trilogy. One, you're making an assumption that it's going to connect to the sequel trilogy that we've seen. Two, you're also judging it on the basis of something else that exists rather than judging it on its own merits. I would rather look at The Mandalorian on its own as its own thing. Yes, it's part of the Star Wars epic. It's part of the Star Wars saga. It's in that universe. But to judge The Mandalorian based on The Last Jedi, I think, is a mistake. And I think that there are some people in fandom, uh, whether they're fandom menace or not, I think people are trying to make those connections to say, we're going to reject The Mandalorian because we see signs that it's going to lead to Last Jedi. We don't know for a fact that that's the direction they're going to go. We have some rumors, we have some hints that the veil of the force, the world between worlds, is possibly going to make an appearance again. Uh, we have a hint of that in the logo for Ahsoka's solo show. So I don't think 
that that's going to uh, go away as a possibility. There is there is a there is a potential, and people have been talking about the sequel trilogy being retconned and shunted off into an alternate universe. If that happens or not, <clears throat> is really kind of immaterial to what's going on because that's twenty twenty five years after the stuff that hand, happens in The Mandalorian. So you can enjoy what's happening in The Mandalorian for what's happening in The Mandalorian. Enjoy that story for what it is. Solo is another example of that. And I think this is one of those things where uh, Disney didn't learn their lesson so much with Solo because Solo was a... Re the, the, the box office failure of Solo was a repudiation of the sequel trilogy because fans were so unhappy with The Last Jedi. If Solo had come out <clears throat> six months later or eight months later or ten months later, it probably would have done better in the box office, but people were still hurt and insulted and angry over what The Last Jedi had done that they decided, okay, we're going to take it out on the next film, and the solo just happened to be the the next convenient target. Uh, Robert, I'm going. I'm not going to. Uh, I'm not going to let those two comments go. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and 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 keep those out because um, we're getting a, you're skating the edge there a little bit. I do think that you've got a point where uh, Mark Hamill maybe doesn't necessarily. Uh, <clears throat> You know he's not completely innocent in all of this because you know he's he's under a contract for the sequel trilogy. Here's the script. You play the part. Part of that is his decision to go along with what was going on. But the other thing there too is that he's got an obligation because of his contract. And yes, he's getting paid to play Luke Skywalker. Uh, and he even said that he fundamentally disagreed with Ryan Johnson. But ultimately, at the end of the day. Ryan Johnson is the director, and the studio is, you know, as we've seen from from things that we've heard about uh, how Kathleen Kennedy runs her shop, you know, if the director has the support of the studio, in this case Lucasfilm and Kathleen Kennedy, then there's really not a whole lot that anybody else can do. And Mark Hamill is kind of obligated at that point. Uh, so I think he's stuck and, and his personal political behavior aside for a moment, I mean, on that front, he's an ass. But if you take just his obligation to play Luke Skywalker and the contract and the sequels and the whatnot, I think that your people that are on screen playing these parts don't have a great deal of wiggle room outside of here's how we here's how we present this story i think i think there's a, a there's a mix there when it comes to what what mark hamill can do and what he's obligated to do and i think we see we've seen since in some of the comments that he's made uh there is an indication and there is uh, there is a, there is a hint that he's not too happy with how things shook out with the sequel trilogy. And if you look at this tweet here, uh, where he talks about sometimes the greatest gifts are the most unexpected and something you never realized you wanted until it was given, it's entirely possible that he's coming to the realization, uh, same as everybody else, that the sequel trilogy is 
uh, a missed opportunity on a number of fronts. He's 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 thrown shade at the sequels before. Uh, there was that one photograph that he posted here a while uh, a while back with him, you know, Luke, Leia, Han, and Lando all in the cockpit of the Falcon, and he's talking about missed opportunities. I think we're going to get more of that as we get further out from the sequel trilogy in time, <clears throat> because it's only been five years. As we get further away from that, and as the Mandalorian time frame fills out and we get more shows there there's a, there is a possibility that yes we head toward the sequel trilogy of sorts but it might not necessarily be the sequel trilogy that we actually saw because if the world between worlds comes back into play then does the sequel trilogy get shunted off into its own time frame universe alternate dimension, whatever? I don't know. If it does, does that fix things? No. But it's, you know, I I think just from what I've seen in the, in the series, I think Jon Favreau is dealing with uh, not only an obligation to head toward that sequel trilogy because it's canon at this point, but make the best of what we have and and is he is he making lemons into lemonades don't know maybe maybe he's taking okay well i'm stuck with this how do we make it work to get there and it doesn't necessarily follow that the mandalorian show is going to take us very far into that yes we've got uh we've got moff gideon and we have the whole thing with the midichlorians from grogu but that time, that, that storyline seems to be played out. So if Mandalorian Season 3 gives us Moff Gideon escaping and establishing the First Order, then you know that's something that we can be concerned about. But I think at this point, a lot of people are making assumptions that they don't necessarily need to be making. Just enjoy the show for what it is. And if you're a fan, and this goes, you know, this could apply to both Wonder Woman, DC Universe, Marvel Universe, Star Wars, Doctor Who, whatever. Because, you know, now, now we're starting to see the rumor that Jodie Jody Whittaker is done after after her third season. She's shooting now for Doctor Who, and then she's out. Uh, so there are rumors right now. It's being reported, but the BBC hasn't confirmed or denied anything like they do. So there is there's a rumor that Jodie Whittaker is done playing the Doctor. And so now you have that one in play as well. A lot of fans back and forth. If the fans are going to sit there and go, yes, this is great. This is good news for Doctor Who. And there are going to be people that sit there and say, oh, this is terrible. Jodie was one of the best Doctors. If you disagree about something, if you're, you, you can still be a fan of the thing and not like certain pieces of the thing. We need to uh, get past and 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 make a make a resolution for 2021. We need to set aside this whole if you don't love X, you're not a true fan of X. And get rid of that because that's not productive. That's not that's not productive to the conversation about any topic, whether it's Star Wars 
or politics or religion or Wonder Woman or comic books or video games or anything. It, there is no value, there is no benefit to drawing a line in the sand and having this litmus test and say, if you don't believe this, if you don't agree with me, then you're not a true fan. And you know, whether it's Comicsgate or Fandom Menace, you're starting to see fracturing and factor, uh, factions and people going after each other, and, and there's just no point to it. You know, speaking as the tired old man in the room, there is no benefit to wasting that kind of energy to fight amongst yourselves if you identify with a group. Whatever that group is, fighting other people who identify with that group is pointless. So stop it. Be nice to each other. Show a little respect to each other. Anyway, all right, so that's that's where we are with those couple of things. I just wanted to just throw throw some stuff out, uh, get some get some opinions out on on record and tell you what I think about some things. Not that anybody's interested in that, and that's fine. I'm going to but coming up on Wednesday, we will have the creators of Macroverse Media here talking with us, and uh, we're in the process of lining up some other guests for this week and next. Uh, so be paying attention to social media. We will be announcing. Uh, those things as they develop. Tonight we will have a brand new um, H2O podcast. Mr. Harvey and I are back for more discussions and uh, digressions. And I don't know what we're going to be talking about tonight, but we will be talking about it uh, tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 Central. And then also tomorrow we will have a brand new Salacious Crumbs new logo because, you know, hey, we're keeping up with the times. That's our, our new logo based on Bad Batch. So we will have the latest Star Wars news here tomorrow night with uh, Salacious Crumbs. And then on Friday, as our companion piece, a brand new Ranker Pit. And as of now, uh, we are scheduled to have a guest, Shauna Terpsik from, uh, from The Mandalorian. She's the costume designer on the show. She will be joining us in the Ranker Pit on Friday. That's at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 Central. In the meantime, we do invite you to subscribe. Check out the rest of our videos. If there's anything that you like, feel free to share. And uh, if you want to leave us a comment or share your thoughts uh, via email, live from the bunker at sci-fi4me.com is that address you can use to get in touch with us. Uh, check out the review of Wonder Woman 1984 over on sci-fi4me.com. And we will be back with more here tomorrow at 1 p.m. Eastern, noon central on Sci-Fi For Me TV. Thanks for being here, everyone. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Copyright 2021 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.